one of the joys for me in being here this week and being on a metta retreat, each time I, I'm part of a metta retreat, is the opportunity to taste all the different flavors of, of what I call love. Love being sort of the overarching or generic um, word for what I think we're sensing into when we when we're working with the qualities of the heart we're very much working with this expression of love and yet sometimes we might feel or sense that this word love is very kind of amorphous or uh, very general but here, when we're doing our practice, we're getting a flavor of each uh, different kinds of love, different expressions of this love. And the, the metta, and I think you're starting to really feel this, the metta really is this quality of friendliness, this deep friendship, or uh, this, uh, as Anushka says, this unstoppable friendship. You know, where we're really feeling into the goodness and this quality to be able to wish well for people and for beings. This simple wish, this very simple wish for happiness. And usually when I think of metta, I remember the story that I heard about one of our beloved teachers, Manindraji, who when he first, he's an Indian uh, man, when he first came to uh, the California and to the United States, and he was, we were taking out on a tour, and he went to the aquarium, and he was looking at all the little fish and all the little creatures in the, in the tanks, and just tapping on the, the uh, glass and saying, be happy, be happy, be happy. May you be happy. May you be well. And I really have that image of him, really this, this very pure and very true expression of his care and his love for these little creatures who he was so close to and so intimate in this aquarium. And so this real um, wish for happiness and how that uplifts the heart when we feel into that. And then when the love is turned towards the more suffering aspect, the painful aspect, then our heart can move into compassion, karuna. You know, so this love turns from the happiness to the pain. And in a very pure way as well, when we touch that pain, we can feel this love coming in contact, and then sometimes we may experience that as a kind of quivering in the heart. It's actually a, oh, it almost takes our breath away when we come into contact with the suffering aspect of our life. And then the joy, it's this love that is actually turned towards the, the, the joy and the success and the good fortune that people experience. And so when our love is, is turned towards that, again, it's this, we feel the joy. If, this, if, the, if there's the capacity to uh, be out of the way and just allow ourselves to feel the joy for other people's joy, for other people's happiness. 
And sometimes that joy can turn into gratitude, particularly when we start to feel our own joy and the blessings in our own life and start to appreciate the things that we have and and the people that we have, our own good fortune. And we can feel, and many people here have felt this deep gratitude for what we what we have, the abundance and the and the uh, all the, the the wonderful blessings that we have in our life, and sometimes we're not seeing that. We're we're turning away, or we're caught up in our our um, our desires and our wants and our aversions, and we can't really feel the gratitude for what we have in our life. So when the heart opens in this way, it opens to the joy, the mudita. And then the equanimity, or the upeka, this equanimity that really allows us to come into a very uh, deep acceptance or an unconditional acceptance with the way things are, where the mind stops its fighting, it stops its struggle, it's the uncontentious mind or the, the mind that is at rest and finally finally saying and coming to terms with the way things are. And as we do that, as the mind quiets down, we begin to feel a kind of inner steadiness and a kind of balance in relationship to the things in our life, people in our life. And so each one of these has a particular kind of flavor, and we get to know them. We get to feel them as they are. So when when they begin to arise spontaneously, we say, oh yeah, my heart really is filled with metta and goodwill. We know that. Or right now, when I'm with this person and this person is expressing a lot of distress or or confusion and pain and we're sitting there and our heart goes, yes, I'm with this person, I can feel this person and our heart moves in compassion. We know that, we can feel that. Or the joy for people's happiness and success. It's all these little, these variations and these expressions of love. We also explored the forgiveness. And the forgiveness, too, is a particular kind of love. It's a way that we begin to kind of clear away some of the barriers over our heart, ways that we were holding and uh, uh, wouldn't, didn't want to let go because of ways we may have been hurt or harmed. And we begin to soften and open around our heart almost like the forgiveness becomes a kind of healing salve on those wounds of our heart and the heart heals through the forgiveness. So we have so many different ways now, different entry, entry points into our heart, ways to work with it, phrases that we can use and we can draw on. So, so much exploration to really begin to know this heart, to know ourselves in this way, to begin to understand ourselves. And we see that actually what's in our heart is actually the same for all beings, that we're not really different, we're not special even, but that we all share 
the same capacity to love and we also share the same capacity to withhold our love, to, to contract and pull away and isolate ourselves. We understand the, the nature of being human, what it's like to be human, a human being, when we understand, too, when, that, when our sense of limit, limitation and our, uh, uh, the way the conditioning of our past constellates around certain things and when that starts to soften and drop away, that this heart can really come forth. It can really express itself in such beautiful ways. We call these Brahmaviharas divine abodes, you know, the, the home of the divine, the home of the gods. You know, when we're feeling and experiencing these particular uh, states, these beautiful states, we feel like we're in the God realm. You know, it feels of he- the heavenly realms. You know, and this is our nature. This is what makes up our goodness. Who we, who we really are. This is from um, a, an Indian teacher named Nisargadatta. He says, When you know beyond all doubting that the same life flows through all that is, and you are that life, you will love all naturally and spontaneously. The same life flows through all that is, and you are that life. You love all naturally and spontaneously. And he says, when you realize the depth and fullness of your love for yourself, you know that every living being and the entire universe are included in your affection. It all flows through that love for ourselves. When we really contact that in its fullness, then our cup overflows and the entire universe, every living being is included in our affection. And maybe some of you were feeling that today as we touch into the all beings and this boundless capacity we have for this inclusion, including all beings without distinction. No matter who they are, what gender, what race, what sexuality, preference, it's whatever is there. We can love that. We can embrace that. But Nisargadatta goes on to say, but when you look at anything as separate from you, you cannot love it, for you are afraid of it. So when we see something separate from ourself, there's some fear. The fear is this ego self. Ego is bound in fear. The sense of ourself is bound up in this fear. And this is what creates this separation or this sense of separation. He says, alienation causes fear and fear deepens alienation. It is a vicious cycle. Only self-realization can break it. Only realizing what's really true can break that vicious cycle, can break that, that fear response of separation and isolation, alienation. So anytime we are caught in our conditioning from our past and we identify with that as who we are, 
we become isolated in some way. We feel ourselves as separate and cut off from that which is boundless and unified, which I'm calling love right now. And we, we, can, we feel a kind of contraction and we can feel small in that. And then we see the world, we perceive the world through this veil of ego or this filter of ego self. And then, then the world appears in this very solid way, in a very fixed way, as if, as if things really are separate and, in, and distanced from me. Like there really is a gap in space and time. And we believe it. This is the conventional view or the con- conventional reality. And without questioning this, without beginning to explore this, this is how we take things to be. This is how we take the world to be. And so then we get caught in what I called the other night these distortions of our love. The love is still, I mean, nothing can take the love away. We're still this expression of a, of a loving nature, of this good nature, but it gets this, this expression is all confused or muddled or distorted. And so then we see how these near enemies of these different qualities of the heart manifest, where the, the love is no longer this boundless love, but it's a bounded love because now I care about what's in it for me. What am I going to get? from this situation, this relationship, uh, what's going on here, what's in it for me. It becomes all about me. And perhaps you've seen that a few times over the week here, where that the mind gets so caught in that that we just get disconnected from the group or from the nature or from the field of metta here. And our mind gets very narrow and very small. And that then we can have a sense of that isolation or that alienation. And with the metta, we can see that how we can get attached, this self-possessed love. It's not just this pure kind of flow of wishing this person happiness anymore. It's like, I want you to be a certain way, and I can only love you if you're like this. And the way you do things and the way you are piss me off. I can't love you when you're like that, you know? So what happened? You know, there's a, a kind of a contraction or a barrier around our heart. So our metta, our, our love, isn't pure in that way. It's still a love. There's still love there, but it's, it's muddled. One teacher called it muddled metta, you know? Metta, but muddled metta, you know? And what muddles it is this, this how the self, this identification with these, these conditioned patterns becomes so real and, and so... Um, Uh, solid in a way that that's what's getting expressed through the love. And it's a a kind of interesting thing because we know we still love. We love this person or we love our animal or we love the situation, but, but it's like we can't fully be there in an open and unbounded way. So something's interfering with this beautiful flow of metta here. With the compassion... 
we can see sometimes how when we come into contact with pain or, or a difficult situation, how we want to, you know, maybe turn away or we, we, we have to separate from it. It's, it's, it's too much for us and we can get angry that it's happening. Why is this happening? This shouldn't be happening. And we can go into a kind of self-righteous anger about it, about, about not only our relationships or, you know, our, our personal situations, but what's happening in the world at a global level. You know, we can, we, and, and then it can seem like, of course we should be angry. I have every right to be angry about this. But yet when we look a little more closely, we can see how it actually can be a barrier over our clarity and our wisdom and our capacity to act in a direct and clear way. Because the anger, again, it's, it, it, there's a way that it's actually more about me. It's what I want and what I think is right. And we can not, again, we not see so clearly or we can, we can fall into the state of overwhelm around our despair or our grief or our sorrow. And it can just overwhelm and flood our consciousness again so, so we're not really in connection anymore. We've lost, we've lost touch with the reality of the situation and we're, we're caught in our own conditioned response. And again, that's not wrong, it's not bad. We're just wanting to understand what actually happens when we, when the flow of our pure love gets uh, tainted or, or, or interfered with. One time, um, Sharon Salzberg, one of our beloved teachers, was here uh, at Spirit Rock teaching, and she told the story about um, a visit that she had actually while she was teaching that week, um, her friend Ramdas uh, came to visit her here at Spirit Rock, and they were meeting in the council house. And Ramdas, some years ago, had a stroke and is par- is is in a paralyzed um, uh, part of his body, and and his speech was very much affected. And he has been healing over some years, but he's in a wheelchair, and sometimes it's difficult for him to articulate things very well. And so when they were, he has an attendant, and they were going up into the council house, and he was helped up there, and, you know, a lot of, lot of uh, attending needs to happen to help him go up the steps and his needs and all that. And Sharon was very aware of all that was, was going into helping him, and her heart was really uh, feeling the, the pain and the care and, the, you know, the compassion and all of that. And she was talking about how um, at the, when he was co- coming back down in going into his van, she was getting all distressed because he seemed to, you know, be kind of not moving very easily. And, you know, it was like a struggle to get him down and the people needed to help him. And he finally got into his van and sat down and, and Sharon just said, oh, you know, are you, are you okay? I mean, are you... Are you, are, is everything okay? Are you really being able to, are you helped okay? And, and he looked at her and he just said, I'm fine. How are you? <laughs> and he was not having any difficulty in himself. But she was, you know, getting really caught up in the whole scene and the whole scenario. 
and really distressed about everything that was happening. This is a few years ago when he was probably not as well as he is right now. And it was so lovely how she told the story on the retreat about her own, you know, seeing her own attachment and her own uh, despair and how she wanted to rescue him and fix him. And yet he was fine. You know, he actually wasn't needing anything. It was all about her, you know. This is what can happen for us. It's really sometimes more about us than it is about what's really needed in the situation. I mean, of course, we, you know, we, we often need to help and be of service, but how often is it that we're not really seeing things very clearly? You know, we make, we make up a, a story in our mind, and it, it gets so much bigger than the reality actually is. And so we have the possibility when we notice ourselves dropping into attachment or self-righteous anger or aversion, we can, we can really begin to ask ourselves, what's going on? What, what is this? Is this actually helping? Is this actually um, uh, in service of the situation here? Or am I just bringing a lot of my own, um, my own past conditioning here into what's happening? And then with the joy, we can see how the distortion is this falling into envy and jealousy when we see other people having good things and, 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 and being happy or being successful. It, it somehow becomes kind of quantified, like, well, if they have that, then I can't have it. Or how come they have it and I don't have it? And we can get into comparing and this comparing can be very painful. And I was reflecting on this because it's so, so interesting that when sometimes I've seen in my own mind when I see other people having these beautiful qualities that, that I wish I had, you know, this kind of projection and idealization of, oh, aren't they, you know, so wonderful. And somehow then I, feel, I can feel diminished, feel less or smaller than. But actually, what's happening is nothing to do with me. I mean, it's really about them having these really beautiful qualities of being. But there's some way that then it gets reflected back on me, and I'm not as good as. I mean, it, it doesn't make sense. You know, it's like like I'm just really appreciating them. So wh- how did I get in there, you know? So it doesn't have to do with me. And so, but it's a funny way that the mind works, that all of a sudden it's about me again. You know, it's a, it's a way that this, this ego is really only interested in itself, ultimately. I mean, this, the self is just, I mean, maybe that's redundant. I mean, it's the self is only interested in itself. And there's a way that it just, that, that view of self just it, it interferes. It, 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 we're not really able to see things so clearly. And it blocks the heart. Just blocks that. We keep turning it back on ourself. And then the story is about me again. It's all about me. And same with equanimity. Equanimity is, you know, this beautiful kind of balanced, steady, kind of still quality of mind. 
But yet when the self comes in, when there's, when there's, again, it's about me, what happens is there's a disconnection from the way things are. And we become, as I was talking about before, we become indifferent or withdrawn or apathetic, um, a way we're not so engaged with, with life and the way things are. And that, that indifference, it's again wrapped around the self with some fear, because it's a fear of engagement. It's a fear of this fullness. It's a fear of being really alive and connected and, and part of. And there's, again, a way that, that one can become more small and contracted and limited in this kind of withdrawal from life. And yet it can look like equanimity, but it's not, because there still is a kind of quiet or, and, and uh, a stillness there. But, but one really needs to look more carefully to see, is there a way that the, I, I don't want to be connected? Or I, it's a way that I feel more comfortable and safe by not getting enga- being more engaged, by, by not connecting, by, by not entering into uh, intimacy and closeness with people and with things. Is there a way I'm afraid of that? And so, so that's why we say the, um, the indifference or the withdrawal is the near enemy because it looks so much like the quality. It looks like equanimity, but it's not. And only oneself can really examine that and say, well, is there some way that I'm holding back? Is there some way I'm closed off here? And so again, for us to look and see What's really true? Is there a way that my heart isn't really open? And we can sometimes feel that energetically because when we really are awake and connected, there's a way we feel a vitality. We feel alive. Even in the midst of some of our emotional life, our difficult emotional life, we're still alive. There's, there's that the energy is moving through our life force and we feel awake and engaged rather than this more kind of, kind of closed down and, and kind of quiet. Even though there may be some calm or ease in that, we want to really look and see what's there. So these, these patterns, these conditioned patterns... They pull us into this solid sense of self where we feel this kind of alienation or this isolation that Nisargadatta was speaking about. We, feel, we can feel kind of small or we can feel kind of limited. And these are all manifestations of grasping and a form of grasping. And whenever there's a grasping, which is the stickiness, grasping, another way I like to sense into what grasping is, is this, where, the, where the mind is sticky. You know, it, it's like Velcro, Velcro mind, you know, gets stuck on, the, on these thoughts of the past or our memories or our beliefs or ideas. And, and that becomes our, our reality. And then we become this, we become, become narrow and small in this world view. So this is the position of the ego. 
and we start to understand more and more how it interferes, how it filters our heart. It filters this love, this pure expression of our nature, this pure expression of our being. And you can see, too, how even though we have a sense of feeling like a solid or separate self, that changes. It's not so solid. I'm sure you've seen that through the week, that sometimes you feel much more contracted, much, sometimes much more caught in your conditioning, and other times you feel very free and open and connected and that love is flowing in that engagement with, with people and with the nature and your way of being here. And then it changes again and you may feel a little bit more caught again and and small and solid, and then it opens again. So even that idea that we are caught in this egotistical view also is not so solid. When you really start to look at that, again, it's an idea. It's an idea that we might have. Oh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm never going to really be that free. I'm just caught in my sense of self and my ego but when we take a closer look maybe that's not true maybe there's much more fluidity maybe there's much more freedom and flow than you actually give yourself credit for sometimes the heart's very open and sometimes it's closed and so so we start to have to question this sense of our identity and who we take ourselves to be in how we characterize ourselves any particular way. Because it's changing. We're fluid. We're shifting. We're actually not so solid in the way that we imagine ourselves to be. And therefore, not so separate. And not as alienated as we imagine that we might be. Maybe we actually are much more connected than we know. Maybe those ways that we imagine ourselves bounded or uh, fixed in some way is not quite the way we imagine it to be. But yet when we get caught in these fixations, we get caught in these patterns, there's so much dukkha, so much suffering. And this is where we find ourselves a lot of the time. And yet, when we see this, what we're asked to do is see if we can really hold ourselves with a great deal of kindness and care. Because, and this is where the equanimity comes in, because this is the way it is. This is the way I am. This is the way you are right now. So when we're, when, we, when we're looking to see what's true, we're looking at any given moment. Right now, what's true? And it may be that right now what's true is that I am feeling contracted and nervous and anxious and, and I'm not really so free in this moment. That may be what's true. So in that moment, am I able to, with a, with a, a clear attention and awareness and uh, metta, really bring a quality of care 
and kindness right to that condition, right to that situation. Because this really is the key to our transformation. This is the key to our practice. We, in the first noble truth of the Buddha, there is suffering in this world. There is suffering in this mind, in this body. This is the human condition. That is not going to change. But what we can change is the way we relate to this truth, is the way that we hold this truth. And the way that we can actually transform this relationship is through these expressions of our love, is the way that I am able to bring an attitude of kindness, an attitude of compassion, an attitude of equanimity to my experience at any given moment, at any given time. And so our practice really becomes one that is um, available to us in every moment, every waking moment. In every waking moment, I have this opportunity to either approach my experience with kindness or with more attachment and with more aversion, with more anger, with more uh, confusion. But in a moment, in the moment that I actually have some clarity of mind, I actually see clearly, oh, this is a condition of suffering. And I see it just as it is with the equanimous, balanced view of bare attention, of bare awareness. Then I can approach the situation with a a healthy, with a, with a skillful mind and heart. One that is saying, this, this requires some love. This requires some care. This requires holding. And the more that I practice that, the more that I do that again and again and again, this is what I am strengthening. This is what gets stronger in my consciousness, in my being. This is what we're conditioning. This is what we're conditioning. A teacher said that we stray from the moment is not surprising. The more crucial thing is that we return. Or we could say that we stray from the heart is not surprising. The more crucial thing is that we return. And this is really how I see our practice. And it's moment to moment to moment that we have this kind of commitment, that we have this kind of willingness to look so honestly, so carefully at what's actually occurring in our experience and then return, return to the mindfulness, or return to the metta. I really see the the metta and the mindfulness work in parallel. They work together. 
They're not separate. When I bring this attention and this, this clarity to my experience, then there's the opportunity for the kindness, for the metta to come forth, or for the compassion, or for the joy, or for the equanimity. Otherwise, I'm just getting caught in my stories, in my ideas, in my memories of the past and the future. And I lose a sense of the ground. I lose a sense of my connection with my resources of my being. And I'm caught and I'm lost in that conditioning, in my old identity and personality. And I lose my resources for the transformation. So this equanimity, I want to speak a little bit more about the equanimity. Because the equanimity is really this radical acceptance of the way things are. And again, we're returning back to this acceptance, returning back to the way things are. And I really feel this is the first step. It's almost like we can't go anywhere until we land in acceptance. And this, it's, it's, the, it's the mindfulness and the bare attention which allows us to see things as they are. And then this capacity or this ability then to accept it, to allow it. This is the way things are. And it brings us right into reality. If we want to know how to arrive in reality or where reality is, this is reality, right here. The way things are right now. Whatever's happening in your mind, what's ever happening in your body, what's ever happening in your emotions, the fact that you're sitting in this room, that we're all here together at this time in this space is reality. Whether we like it or not, (laughs) Whether you like where you are or you don't like where you are, you don't like how you're feeling, you don't, you do like how you're feeling, it's still the way things are. So we're wanting to come more and more into this acceptance, and this is the equanimity practice. This is the, the orientation. This is the inclination. And we have these very beautiful phrases. Equanimity is one of my favorite practices. I I love practicing the equanimity practice. And I've had lots of opportunities to practice it because my mind gets into a lot of conflict and a lot of struggle with the way things are. And so I really come back to these phrases again and again. You know, the, my favorite phrase that I, I, I told you the other day was, no matter how much I may wish for things to be otherwise, things are as they are. And I, my mind is moving out in that, I want it to be different. I want my mind to be different. I want my body to be different. I want this other person to be different. I want the situation to be different. And then having to take that breath and come into the reality that things are the way they are. 
Or a phrase, may I open to the conditions of my life with equanimity. May I be able to open. May my heart be big enough to to hold the joys and sorrows without being overwhelmed. And today somebody was talking about that particular phrase and she said, I know my heart is big enough to hold all the joys and sorrows. I know my heart is big enough, but I don't feel it. You know, it's an interesting kind of thing. It's sort of we know that we have the capacity, but yet we feel our sense of limitation in that. It's really deeply starting to trust in the way things are unfolding. Whether I understand it or not, things are unfolding according to a natural law. This natural law, which is the Dharma. Things, the Dharma is unfolding. It's natural law. And more and more coming into this acceptance, which means we come into alignment with the Dharma. We come into alignment with reality. We, we, we become that reality. We're not pulled apart. We're not... Uh, fragmented, we're not separated, but we become that flow of reality itself, not different then. It's not like reality is here and reality is there and reality is over there. And rea- you know, It's not like there's all these different realities. I mean, yes, it's true, each person has a, an experience, but we're not disconnected. Everybody's reality affects everybody else's reality. You know, so it brings we, we it, it 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 gives rise to this. You know, there's a hundred people in this room, and it's true we all have a different experience, but this is what we're creating together. <laughs> you know, depending on you know where you are, and we've been practicing metta for this week, so maybe we're in a little better place in ourselves than we were a week ago. So as we sit here in this room, maybe we're feeling a little bit more of the open-heartedness, the uh, connectedness that is more available with each of us as we sit here. So we're coming into this, the way things are, and this is, the, in a way, the platform This is the ground from which then we step into action. It doesn't mean that acceptance is where we stop. Because a lot of people wonder about that. It's like, well, I can just accept, but then how how does the world change? You know, how do things change? Because I'm just accepting. But acceptance is where we begin. Because first we're aligned with the reality, we're seeing things more clearly, we're not getting caught in our reactivity, I'm not caught in my attachment and my aversion, there's some balance and there's some steadiness. Now I'm prepared to respond to what's needed. The world is arising in in a certain conditioned way and I respond to that. We call this, in this clear and equanimous place, it's, we call it an appropriate response. An appropriate response, because it's one that's aligned with the way things are. 
we move from clarity. And the equanimity is said to have this mirror-like quality because the mind is still and not moving in its reactivity. So there's a, a stillness, like a still, clear pond. And in that stillness, in that, with that mirror-like quality, it reflects the world. It reflects reality in a pristine way. So we can see more clearly and then respond more appropriately. So it's really the equanimity that grounds us that anchors us in this reality. So we're not so pulled around by our patterns of our our conditioned mind. And this equanimity is supported by insight. It's supported by wisdom. So the clarity and the connection with reality, we begin to see the way things really are, which brings about insight. It brings about the wisdom. One of our beloved teachers, Ajahn Amaro, calls this the fairy dust in experience. It's the, the wisdom or, or the insight is the fairy dust. It's what really <laughs> makes things uh, lighter and more transparent and more translucent when we begin to have this clarity. And generally when we talk about the insights that supports equanimity, we're talking about three particular insights. The insights into uh, dukkha or suffering, the nature of suffering, which we've been speaking about. The insight into the nature of impermanence, that all things are arising and passing and there really isn't anything solid. There isn't anything that's really separate. We begin to sense that and know that and feel the transient nature of things and even our own mind and our body and our emotions more and more we sense into this uh, transient nature. And I want to um, just read this quote from Ajahn Chah, this wonderful uh, master who says, How can you find right understanding? I can answer you simply by using this glass of water I am holding. It appears to us as clean and useful something to drink from and keep for a long time. But right understanding, it's like right insight or right wisdom, is to see this as this glass is already broken, as if it's already been shattered. Sooner or later it will be shattered. If you keep this understanding while you are using it, that all, that all it is is a combination of elements which come together in this form and then break apart, then no matter what happens to this glass, you will have no problem. This is such a deep wisdom to see this glass is already shattered. It's already broken. Because it is its elements. It's just a it's just made up of a, a combination of different elements and constellates as a glass, what we call glass, and it has a sense of solidity. But more and more we start to see through that, so we're not holding on in the same way, we're not as attached in the same way, grasping, clinging to the way things appear in this reality. So dukkha, insight into the Uh, into the nature of suffering, 
So we understand it and that we know that it's not going to disappear, but we can change our relationship to it. The insight into a Nietzsche or impermanence, seeing things are, are not as solid as they appear. And then the third insight is the insight into anatta or the selfless nature, what we call emptiness. James spoke about the other night. But es- emptiness can seem like something very esoteric, but yet the, uh, a very helpful doorway into the revelation of emptiness is really seeing the impermanent nature, seeing the transient nature, because we're actually just seeing that there's nothing really so solid there. It's empty of solidity. It's empty of this sense of self-existence or an independent existence but it's actually uh, a condition that's arising within a whole set of causes and conditions and manifests as this. But in itself, it is empty. That things are born, they exist for a little while, and they pass away. That everything has a nature that is not fixed, that is not solid. That everything is in transition. And it's this empty nature or this lack of solidity that really allows for things to be free, to be born, to unfold, to pass away. It is that empty nature which allows for this beautiful fullness and this manifestation in which we are, this reality that we are right now changing moment to moment. Another teacher said that the only way to truly eradicate suffering is through understanding the ultimate knowledge of the nature of things. That together with great compassion. So wisdom and compassion. Why is this true? Because then we're not acting out. We're not reacting out of our own egoic needs, our own desires. But we actually then have some capacity to hold things lightly because we have more of a sense of the nature of the way things really are, that they're transient, that they're selfless. And if we hold on, they're ultimately unsatisfying. They create suffering. So when we're really in touch with reality, in a grounded way, with the way things are, and we're not turning away through our own egoic confusion, our own sense of separation and alienation, when we actually stay present our heart opens. Our heart opens in love because when we're in contact, we love what we're in contact with. When we're really open and we're not caught in our self, our egoic self. Because what's not to love? What's not to love? This is a very precious and mysterious world that we live in. 
There's so much to learn. There's so much to understand. There's so much to discover. There's so much to know. And this is all for us to explore and to discover this reality, the nature of this reality. So I want to end with um, reading this poem from Naomi Shihab Nye. She's one of my favorite poets. She's a Palestinian uh, um, American poet. And this particular one is called um, Red, Red Brocade. The Arabs used to say, when a stranger appears at your door, feed him for three days before asking who he is, where he comes from, where he's headed. That way he'll have strength enough to answer. Or by then you'll be such good friends you don't care. Let's go back to that. Rice, pine nuts, here, take the red brocade pillow. My child will serve water to your horse. No, I was not busy when you came. I was not preparing to be busy. That's the armor everyone put on to pretend they had a purpose in the world. I refuse to be claimed. Your plate is waiting. We will snip fresh mint into your tea. This line, I refuse to be claimed. This is the one that really touches me, you know? It's really, I refuse, to be re- I refuse to be claimed by my conditioning. I refuse to be claimed by my past. I refuse to be claimed by what the culture has wanted me to be or made me into or what I believed I needed to be or who I needed to be. I refuse to be claimed. And I will let my heart flow towards all beings without distinction. I will let my, my love and my care and my wisdom touch my own heart and being so that it flows out to all beings everywhere. Let's sit together for a moment. When you know beyond all doubting that the same life flows through all that is and you are that life, you will love all naturally and spontaneously.
Thank you. So I just want to say a, a couple of words about the next um, uh, hours of our retreat together. And so this evening we'll um, have an, the next sitting at 9 o'clock. It's not time for some walking. We're also going to uncover the... Um Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.